0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we're going to be talking about Dicey Song by Cynthia Voigt, which is the Newbery Medal winner book in 1983 and will therefore wrap up our seventh season. And
1: I have a citation from Kirkus Reviews, I've edited it just for brevity sake family ties come through as the keynote of the satisfying and positive sequel to homecoming which sees dicey and her three younger siblings settled on grandmother tillerman's chesapeake bay farm with mama in a mental hospital and local rumors that old miss tillerman is crazy it's a relief to find graham a wise and capable if sometimes eccentric upbringer through all the hardships comforts and passages dicey remains the sturdy presence we met in homecoming Now she and Graham make a strong, crusty pair, and the other children come along according to their observantly individualized courses, a resilient family, and a gratifying journey's end. I really just wanted to say crusty pair.
0: I know you did.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this is the Kirkus Review from October 1st, 1982. So.
0: Well, should we? Uh, we should probably lead with the fact that this is part of a series of books collectively called the Tillerman Cycle. There was one book that happened before this, which is referenced a lot in this book, and there are seven books total, including *A Solitary Blue*, which won a Newbery Honor the next year, and which we have already reviewed. So, if you want to hear that one, which is not probably as positive as this review, but you can go back and listen to it on our archives. And the book that Marcy was talking about that's referenced
1: a lot is Homecoming, and it's the first book in the cycle. It opens with Dicey and her three siblings, James, Maybeth, and Sammy, sitting in a parked car in a mall parking lot, waiting for their mom to return, and then she doesn't. And it's about Dicey leading her siblings to try to find family to take them in. Yeah.
0: And it's such a like heart-wrenching book.
1: It's heart-wrenching and it's beautiful and it's it's got a lot of elements that I really love about children's books, which are a journey, like a physical journey, not just like a, a journey of self-discovery or an emotional journey, although those happen as well. And then it has kind of, I think all of these books have kind of what I really respond to in books like The Hobbit, which is... A lot of talk about the food, but not in a way that's overwhelming. So you get a really good sense of these characters and what they like and how they live their daily life. And that's something I always like in books. But I do think that if we, if I hadn't read Homecoming, and I thought this the first time I read Dicey Song right after reading Homecoming— I don't know if I would understand this book as well.
0: Well, so I love this book, but I haven't read it in a long time, I realized. Definitely not since becoming a parent. So it's been at least seven or eight years. And I, you know, I always reread the book before we do these reviews. And I intentionally did not read Homecoming first to try to gauge that. Mm-hmm. And it holds up, but you do get the sense that you're missing a lot.
1: Yeah. I mean, luckily I remembered all, like, pretty much everything about Homecoming, Mm -hmm. even though I didn't reread it before this. And so I just did read this standalone. But I do want to recommend those of you who are listening, if you are interested in these stories, start with Homecoming. Just go ahead and read that. It's a quick read. It's really amazing. And it sets up everything else in the cycle. Mm-hmm. really well. And I, I think without that missing piece, I think you just kind of, it's not just me being like an uptight completionist with series, which is, I tend to be, um, <laughs> they, like you actually really need that background for this story to to really fill out as a reader.
0: It really, it really does come across as like a part one and part two of the same story. And the way that these books work as a series, the there are, you know, so Homecoming is sort of the part one. (laughs) And then, I mean, let's see. Yeah. Homecoming is kind of the part one. Dicey Song is sort of the part two. And then A Solitary Blue and Come a Stranger kind of cover the same territory as this book, Dicey Song, but from the perspective of different people. There's one called The Runner, which is a prequel about their uncle, but that doesn't really inform the story as much as Homecoming does. And then there are two more that happen later, but this one is sort of like the nexus in the middle of all of them.
1: So it sounds like Marcy and I both are recommending you read Homecoming and then Dicey Song and then go to the other ones. Yes. Do you like this book? I really, really like this book. I would say I love Homecoming, but I really, really like this book. Again, I feel like it has a lot of strengths to it. And the writing is really, really strong. I do have some quibbles on some other things, and we'll get to those. I think this book really captures the time in which it was written. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like it captures and engages with, much like uh, Sweet Whisper's Brother Rush, with issues of poverty and issues of family fracture and ultimately death that are really unflinching, really clear looks at those topics. And so I really think that it's, it's very well done and I really, really like it. What about you?
0: I do. I know that when we reviewed A Solitary Blue, I had some negative things to say, but I really, I like, I like Dicey song. And I actually like A Solitary Blue in terms of like reading it as part of the cycle. I I, I guess I was critiquing that one as a standalone book, which in my opinion doesn't hold up as well. But this one does. And the characterization is amazing. Like every one of the siblings is so distinct and well not just well thought out, but like they have personalities, you know, and they all have problems and flaws. And it's not just like, there's the smart one, there's the jock one. Like they have real complex personalities and it makes for, it makes for an interesting story because while there are a lot of issues in this book, I feel like the main like backbone in this book is just about the relationships between the family members and friends. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that that is absolutely what holds this book together. And I think that they're so nuanced and they're so strong that it's hard not to fall in love with all of these characters and their story.
0: And I think that, I mean, if it were me, like that would be why it turned into a seven book cycle because the people in it are so distinct and so interesting that you can go and then write a book covering the same topics, but like from the perspective of the best friend or like, you know, the the younger brother. It just they're they're so real that you're like, oh, yeah, of course they have their own story and their own thing going on. For the story itself, it picks up exactly where
1: Homecoming leaves off, which is all of the children have made their way to Grandma Tillerman's farm in Chesapeake Bay. And I don't want to spoil Homecoming, but it's a long journey where Dicey has to take care of her three younger siblings and make sure they have food and stay clean. And they meet a cast of characters along the way. But they finally have made it to Grandma's farm. And now it's about them learning how to live together as a family.
0: Yeah. And Graham, too, is very, like, prickly and not like your typical sweet grandmother. Which is refreshing. (laughs) And she's not like stock character grandma.
1: There's another moment in the book where another character describes Graham Tillerman as playing weird chess. And I think that is like the perfect phrase (laughs) for Grandma Tillerman, even though I don't know if there's an actual definition for that somewhere. I forgot to look it up. But just the idea that someone is odd, they don't care. They have reasons for doing what they're doing and everyone knows it. I find that extremely appealing.
0: Yeah. Well, and just like the description of what makes her odd is so like, maybe it's just because it's pandemic times, but like, I so relate. They're like, she has just like, her hair is a little wild and she's wearing like the early 80s version of jammies, honestly, like just a long, loose skirt and a loose blouse and no shoes. I'm like, I can totally get behind that. Like, There's nothing weird (laughs) about that at all.
1: Yeah. And I mean, she's kept to herself. She raised a family. She took care of her husband. She took care of this this section of land that she has. And then she's been living on her own for a really long time with one son that died in uh, Vietnam. His nickname was Bullet, and that he comes up several times throughout the book. And then another son who has moved out to California and doesn't know anything, or she doesn't really know much about his current life. And then Dicey and her sibling's mom, homecoming ends with them having made it to the farm, and they do know that their mom is comatose in the hospital up in Boston. So we open the, we open this book with that knowledge, and that's a major a major plot point throughout this book.
0: What I find interesting about this book is that it reads like a very plot-heavy book in in just the the readability of it, but when you think about it, not much actually happens.
1: No, it's very it's very subtle and it's very especially compared to the big journey of homecoming, it's much smaller in scale. But you have a lot of like growth in this book and a lot of emotional beats that are hit. So you have James who is struggling about letting all the kids at his school know how smart he is because he's afraid he won't have friends. You have Sammy who is keeping quiet and not being rambunctious, which is really against his nature because he – Again, kind of wants to fit in and not cause any trouble. And then Maybeth, who's having learning difficulties and has kind of been written off by her teacher, but she has this amazing musical ability. And then Dicey, who's just kind of trying to get along and keep going and trying to figure out what it's like to be in this new place and what it's like to be starting to grow up out of childhood into teenhood.
0: Yeah, and all of the problems are are complex and very well developed, and it's it's nice to see the progress that they make, but also that it's not like just too easy. Like nothing is like little pat on the nose. Here's the solution. You know, none of it is like that, Mm -hmm. which is which is satisfying as a read because sometimes you read that and you're like you get a feel good moment out of it, but it just doesn't feel real. And this book feels real. It does.
1: I do feel like there are two – well, there's three big supporting characters that are introduced into the Tillermans' lives in this book. And one is Mr. Lingerly, who is a music teacher, Maybeth's music teacher, and recognizes her talent and wants to nurture that. And he becomes a big family friend. I really take issue with the way he's described. Agreed. So he is a – he's a fat man. He is alternately described as being basically bulbous and having giant flaps of skin. And I do think that it's important to be honest and straightforward in children's books, but he's described in a really grotesque way. Also, that's the only way
0: that he's described –
1: Yeah, everything, everything circles back to his weight. And the first time he eats dinner with them, they're like, they're surprised that he didn't eat more because he's a big fatty and he admits that he's going to go home and eat extra food. And then like, I guess it's supposed to be growth and like, like they've opened their eyes slash he feels comfortable with them. They have Thanksgiving and he's described as just like shoveling in food I just, I have a I have an issue with that because I really, I mean, he's he's becoming part of their family and he's becoming a really good friend and there's just not much description of him other than being this kind of disgusting figure.
0: I mean, he plays music beautifully and his actions- But he's like sweating and huffing when he's doing it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, th- I feel like the actions that he takes during the book in terms of encouraging Maybeth and and all that are good. But you're right that when he is actually being described, like not what he's doing, but like just him as a person, nothing except for his fatness is ever used to qualify him.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, that that's probably, you know, that's probably my lens on it. But like at the same time, I think that really it shows how it's a perfect example of the demonization of fatness in books and in media throughout the ages.
0: Well, and I think that I think that it was an attempt to be as unflinching about that as this book is about things like poverty and race and mental health, but I think that is the one aspect where it fails a little bit. Yeah, I agree. Because, I mean, the rest of the things I can sort of put down to 1983, like attitudes and terminology, like clearly this book is meant to be positive and is meant to be framing all these people in a very positive way. But using and I'm going to use quotes here, you know, calling people crazy is no longer acceptable and calling people retarded is no longer acceptable, although in this, you know, in In dicey song, that term is used in what is clearly meant to be like more of a a diagnostic way, like not as an insult or anything, but it's obviously not an acceptable term to use in writing now. Like those things I can kind of get past because that's just, you know, times have changed and she wasn't trying to be insulting or anything like that. But the fatness description is a little harder to get past because it's such a, it's just such a focus. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. not like somebody was just referring to somebody's weight in a in an outdated way. It was just like really like, hey, this dude, this is all there is about this dude.
1: Yeah, I mean, he really comes off physically as like Job of the Hut, and I just don't. I to me, with a book that's so realistic, it just it just sticks out for that reason, but also for the the other reasons we've already talked about, and I also took issue with Mina. I think she's a really cool character, but that's something I don't think we've talked about on, on this podcast before is this idea or this positioning that so many, so many books have done for decades and decades where white skin is the default. Right. So it's great that she's, you know, that Mina is described and she, she sounds lovely. Like, you know, she sounds like a beautiful young lady, but she also, you know, they talk she's talked about her skin her skin tone and that's the only character the skin color is described in this book and that's something that i think we're we're definitely veering away from i think you know i prefer either everyone's skin tone is is described in a book or no one's is but you know cherry picking diverse characters and, and, you know, describing their skin tone is something that's very, doesn't settle well with me. And I know that this was something that was just considered, it wasn't even considered. It was just the way that, that books were written for many, many years. But, you know, it just took, it stood out to me in this book because it always feels reductive and it just, it kept coming up. Right. And it hmm. so, yeah, that's just something that I, I, I think sticks in my craw now even more than it, once I became aware of it. Mm
0: -hmm. I think that the way that Mina was written and the fact that she's physically described was kind of reflecting Dicey's awareness of race. Like when they're describing the, the seating arrangements, when she first goes to school, she they actually refer to like the, the Waterman's children sit in the back and the town children who are all dressed up sit in the very front. And then, you know, the, the blacks all sit together like that. You know, was it was surprising to read that? Like, I was a little startled to read that. But when I thought about it and thought about the time that it was written, like that—that that probably is an accurate like reflection of how the seating arrangements were. And it was just like a flat observation. Obviously, the terminology is outdated, but I think describing Mina's skin was an attempt to be again unflinching in describing a situation and not necessarily trying to other mean. I mean. It is othering Mina, but it's not – it's othering her in a way that I think is supposed to bring, like, recognition to the fact that, like, she has to deal with harder problems than everybody else and not in a way that is trying to belittle her.
1: I definitely feel like that's the the aim of the book, and I I totally got all of that. I just think that this definitely is – You know, Mina's the only person whose skin is described at length, you know? Yeah. And so that has a purpose in this book, but there's ways of doing that where you frame it so that Dicey is maybe thinking about her own skin or her own – who she's surrounded by normally Mm -hmm. in contrast. So there is some, you know, meditation or some thinking about it rather than like, you know – Just that this character – because we don't know – I mean, Jeff could be black. That's true. Right? But we never – we're not given a skin description of him. So that leads me to believe that he's white, which means like most books for a very long time and still, the idea of, you know, the default is white skin.
0: But wouldn't that be the case for Dicey's life? You know what I mean? It would
1: be, but I I feel like, you know – There's no engaging with it on that level. And that's fine. You know, it it is, it can be a product of its time. It can be, you know, lots of different things. I do think it's effective in thinking about racial issues in this small Northeastern town. I do think it it has a lot of effective parts on that. But I, you know, that's just something, and I'm not damning the book for this. I just think that. It's just very indicative and very like a clear-cut example of of this, which you encounter in just
0: eons of books. Oh, this is yeah, of course true. But I think I think that some of the racial issues are are handled well in some cases, though, or at least in a way that shows that um, it show that they show that Dicey's eyes are being opened a bit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to flip to what's page 162 in my book where Graham has gone to visit Mina's family. More like, what did she say? She said, I've come to put a face on the boogeyman. And it basically implies that their family would be judging the Tillermans rather than the other way around, which one is a good thing. But two, Mina says that her mother called Graham a lady Uh, And then says, mom only says that about any white woman who doesn't ask if she does daily cleaning. Graham wouldn't do that, Dicey protested. She's a minority. Dicey looked at her friend with an idea of the difficulties this girl might face, and she knew that she had only the vaguest idea of them. Mina must know much, much more. And so I feel like, yes, being a product of its times, it has a lot of failings in that way because, I mean recent events, notwithstanding, we have made progress, but at least that felt like respectful and truthful too. Yes, very much so. So I liked that aspect of it.
1: No, I thought there were a lot of really beautiful moments, that one included, where Dicey, you you see these beats where Dicey is thinking about the world outside of herself and you're thinking, you're seeing Dicey understand that Yes, she's had it very rough and she she and her siblings have had, you know, had to endure some things that no child has had to endure really. But there's still plenty of other hardships that she has no concept of. And I thought that was a very amazing, in particular, the passage that you read, a really amazing inclusion yeah. And kind of a dicey examining her white privilege without knowing those terms and and having, you know, the language that we use now to use, to analyze. I just it, you know, I didn't I think I had an outsized reaction to the the default white skin color thing mm-hmm. because it is just something that just keeps coming up over and over and it over. Is and yeah. so I can't imagine being a person of color and just book after book that you read, you know, the characters are assumed to be white, and then if you do get a description of someone who is African American or Latinx or Asian, they they have their skin is described as chocolate or as sunset or you know colors from a crayon box or you know, it's like that's fair, that's fair. You know, it's like I I can't imagine. I mean, once I became aware of this a couple years back, I started to get fatigued and I'm, you know, I'm not in a dark, a darker skinned body every day. So I can't even imagine like, what's that, what that's like to, going into a book, not knowing if you're going to have to read, that. <laughs> you know, I just think it probably is gotta be exhausting.
0: Yeah, and I don't disagree with any of that, but I'm looking at the way that Mina is described, and they're actually not talking about her skin.
1: They don't until the second time she's described.
0: Okay. Yeah, because at first I was like, yes, yes, we did
1: it. She did it. (laughs) She's talking about her hairstyle, and that, you know, she says that she's black, but she doesn't go into, like, description
0: of her skin. And then um, the second time... She does, and um, I can almost find made that. it. Almost made it. Yeah, I just didn't remember that. Which again it is an example of privilege, because yeah. But so my copy
1: it's um on page thirty-five because I was like, yes, we. I can't believe this happened in a book from nineteen eighty-two. I was like so excited, and. Then... <laughs> It's on page 35 in mine. And Amina says, we're the smartest ones in here, lowering her voice so that nobody can hear. She smiled at Dicey and her teeth flashed white and her round cheeks got rounder. Oh, yeah. Her skin was smooth and milk chocolate brown. (laughs) Her hands arranging things on the tabletop were large and quick. And it was just like, okay, you know, okay, I got it. I do think that there's enough in the book that explains or shows that Voight was not, that was not her intent. right? Right. Dicey and her siblings are now in this new school, and they're making friends and they're making their way. Dicey's working on a boat, sanding a boat down and restoring it so that she can take up some more boating activities, which she she first did in Homecoming.
0: And, and it's a very um, metaphorical boat. Yes. Very, and very metaphoric. And Beth
1: is having some big, serious learning problems. And it turns out that James, with some prompting, is able to start teaching her how to read effectively. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that, again, this was a really great ex- exploration and take on learning disabilities in a book from the 1980s.
0: Yeah. Although, do you not hate all those teachers? Oh, yeah. They're I mean, all just awful. They're terrible. Like terrible. Dicey's teacher accused her in front of the whole class of plagiarizing her work because it's too good. And no like and he would have gotten away with it if Mina didn't like stand up and be like, mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> and Maybeth's teacher is just like, well, she can't read. Like, that's it. I can't teach her. Or not even that, but thinks that Maybeth is not even trying, even though she clearly is. And yeah. then just this whole like bevy of awful teachers through this whole book. It makes me so angry, especially like this is a hard book to read at at this point, like for me, because I think when I read this book before, I was not a parent. And right now I am a parent of a kindergartner and a second grader and second grade is specifically what one of the kids is. And so it, the issues like really like hit me in the feels you know and if Mm -hmm. I had teachers treating my kids this way and dismissing them and like not even attempting to teach to their strengths and letting them like fight each other and get bullied and like making no effort like when I compare that to what the teachers are like that my kids actually have who are like freaking heroes And like I'm sitting here at, at my desk and it's I'm surrounded by piles of little presents that I've been putting together for the teachers because like they they get bonuses that we've all chipped in for but like if I don't give them like a present and a note and like explain the amazing work that they're doing for for me, for my life, for my kids, like I want, I can't sleep. Right. So to have teachers like that described in this book for these kids who clearly need help, like hurts me. Right. It's such a hard book to read at this stage in life.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, again, I think it's indicative of, of that time frame where a lot of people in the education field had been doing this for years and they, you know there weren't the diagnoses and the understanding that we have now for a lot of conditions that would impede learning and it doesn't it never meant that they couldn't learn it just meant they needed to learn in a different way mm-hmm. so you know yes it's harsh and it's grim but i also feel like it's pretty realistic for the time frame
0: i know it's just hard to read cuz like you feel like they finally got into this home right But it's not like their problems are solved. And even now, like, the issues that they're having are very real and serious issues, but they still have to solve them themselves. You know, like, the school system is not going to step in and be like, oh, well, you clearly need this and that. And, like, the social issues are not being helped by anyone. Like, Dicey has to kind of settle in but find her level of responsibility for her family, but it doesn't go away.
1: Well, and that was another thing that I thought was really interesting about this book is the whole idea of Graham like telling Dicey that all the, you know, your siblings are still your responsibility and that you have a big part in holding this family together, which I think is true, but I don't think it's often that we get we get characters, like adult characters, telling children that they need to step up in an emotional way for their bigger family unit.
0: Yeah, and it may in it, this way it feels unfair to Dicey, but it also feels sort of emotionally mature of Graham to be r- cognizant of the fact that she can't do it at all. You know, she can't do it all herself, and admitting that she needs help doing it means that she's yeah. less likely to fail in the way that the mother failed. Yeah. And let's talk about the mother for a minute, because you know the whole book, she
1: is in the hospital, like a, a mental hospital.
0: She's comatose.
1: Yeah, she's comatose. But Dicey and the other kids don't really know what's going on with her because Graham would get these letters from the from the hospital and not really share their contents. Yeah. So the kids are left wondering and and just not really knowing until Graham is like Dicey, pack a bag. We're going up to Boston to see your mom.
0: And and during the course of the book, it's like the kids say several times that the doctors don't think that she's going to get better, but they clearly all hope that she will. The kids all still very much hope that their mom will get better, but they're saying that they know that that's not likely. But then Graham, when, when, like you're saying, Graham packs up dice. He doesn't tell her what's going on. It's just like, we're going to Boston. And when they get there, the mom is clearly dying, even though she's not awake or anything. She's just, it's obvious to everybody. Yeah. And it made me think about,
1: because I think we find out that basically when she left them in the car, she had a medical event and then they didn't know, she didn't have any ID on her. And that's why she didn't return to the car.
0: Yeah. So the like the they had asked a policeman to look for her because they didn't know like was she even alive? Like what had happened? And he came back and was like, Yeah, they found her comatose in a mental hospital or in a in a medical facility for people who with mental issues. But she apparently just never responded to any treatment and the doctor kind of callously is like, Maybe it's better this way, which of course Dicey did not take well, but but the mom does pass away.
1: And there's a, a- you know, part where Dicey's wandering around Boston and buying gifts for her her siblings because Graham doesn't want her at the hospital, and that's all very touching. And then they end up getting the mom cremated and bringing her back in a box that Dicey gets from a store where she had met the proprietor who makes all the the wonderful handicrafts, woodcrafts in the store, and he gifted the box to her and Graham to put their mom's ashes in.
0: And they take her home and bury the box under a tree that's like significant to them throughout the book on, on Graham's property, the paper mulberry. Yep. And it's interesting because the kids are upset, but they're also like resigned. Like they had all like hoped deep inside, but knew also that it, this was probably what was going to happen and so while they're all sad nobody is really like shocked or horrified or anything they're just like okay we get it yeah it's not it's not an uplifting book <laughs> no it's not an uplifting book at all i mean
1: well i would say it's not an uplifting book but it's it's definitely, I think, ends on a higher note than where it begins. Certainly. Even though there's been a lot of pain and a lot of... Loss. Yeah, pain and loss and just mental anguish in the book.
0: But you know what? I think especially... I feel like I can say with some authority after the past couple of years that we've had that uncertainty is one of the hardest things to deal with. And especially when a good outcome is not likely, like the uncertainty is harder to manage than anything else. And so for the kid's own mental health, knowing one way or the other, even if it's bad, is easier to deal with, I think. So in that way, I I think it does end on a hopeful note. Because they're not just like waiting for the for the the shoe to drop. It's like it's happened, and they can kind of start to move on all that aside, it's an extremely well written book. like i I enjoy the like the solid craftsmanship in this book. <laughs> and it's nice, too, because Dicey begins writing in the book. And her way of thinking about writing, I think reflects the way the book is written. Like she's she's writing this essay. And she's like, has to go write it down the beginning because she thinks of a beginning that's going to give her a good ending. And like the book itself is like that, where the the beginning of the book is, and they lived happily ever after. And the very end of the book is, so Graham began the story. Like I feel like it's just nicely packaged in terms of writing.
1: I do think this is a solid book. I I do when I think about this year of Newbery, it's just kind of gives me whiplash. Uh, I mean, there's so many different books that were listed for this year. You know, we have Graven Images. We have Dr. DeSoto. We have Sweet Whispers, Brother Rush. Some some of these are- Homesick, (laughs) The Blue Sword. I mean, there's just like so many different genres and different types of writing represented this year in Newberry. It's kind of amazing.
0: I know. It's like- What do you need? Do you want? Do you want a solemn coming of age story with like emotional depth? Do you want a mouse dentist? Do you want magic? (laughs) Do you want magic and wonderful horses? Like, do you want? Do you want a binnacle boy? Yeah, nobody wants a binnacle boy. (laughs) Nobody wants a
1: binnacle boy. I kind of want a binnacle boy now, just to put outside your house and stare at.
0: It wouldn't last long. Let me tell you, it would not last long. (laughs) Well, and I don't know what drink or snack we're going to pair with this, but I feel confident uh, because I know that at least unlike a solitary blue, we will not be forced to make the sad hot dog sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. Jeff is so happy in this book comparatively. <laughs> I know. Especially if you've read all these books before and you're reading the characters of Mina and Jeff and you know there's so much more to them. Jeff in particular has a very sad backstory. And if you want to know how sad, again, you can go listen to our review that we did previously. But the picture that we took for that is of the hot dog sandwich described in the book and it's horrific. It looks gross. My husband actually ate that.
1: Well, I ate it too. We ate it. I did We didn't. We, that was like a picture
0: you made after the fact
1: but don't you remember we actually ate the hot dog sandwiches I didn't uh, yeah I. well oh, I ate it, eating it. I, and it was it was fine it was fine it was just so sad because he kept making them in the book and he was so sad when he was making them I know but anyway. and so the extra ingredient is sadness for the <laughs> hot dog sandwiches yes. Marcy, do you have any read-alikes?
0: Oh, yes. So... Um, The obvious read-alikes are the rest of the Tillerman cycle. There's seven books, like what you said, and if you like this book, you will like the others because a lot of them are covering the literal same story from different people's perspectives. One of them is a prequel that happens ten years before and if you want just like a straight-up another dicey story, there is one called Seventeen Against the Dealer that happens later. Also, Cynthia Voigt was very prolific and has lots of other books that are not about the Tillermans. So if you just like her writing style that's a good way to go. I can also recommend a whole bunch of books about the Austin family by Madeline Langle, so she had different everybody fits together like a puzzle piece in her world, but the sort of more prosaic family that doesn't go on magical adventures is called the Austins. So the first book in that is called Meet the Austins, and that reminds me of this a little bit not in Not even remotely in the family life, like they have a very loving and and warm like home family life and both parents and all that. But just in the uh, here's a story about kind of coming of age and your relationships, relationships with people and having to sort of come to terms with who you are, not through like dramatic things, but through your family's. And friends and your values and things like that. And then in the way that you can read other books to explore different characters and things happening before and after and intertwined, like in that sense, this book series reminds me of that one. What about you? So there were two books that came to mind when I was rereading this book. One is
1: Locomotion by Jacqueline Woodson. Mm. And it's about a boy, Lonnie, who's seven years old and He and his sister were orphaned when their their parents passed in a fire, and so it's about his experience with being in foster care and his sister being in a different foster home, and it just has a lot of the same themes of like holding on to family and growing up. Ordinary Hazards by Nikki Grimes, who we've interviewed twice, and, and she's just wonderful. And it's her memoir of growing up in a family with a lot of uh, a lot of different issues, mental health issues, an absent father, and then going from foster family to foster family. And it's really a, a rough read because she's such a beautiful writer, but it's it's just so. It's such a beautiful book. It really is. So both of those books, to me, reminded me, I was reminded of them when I reread Homecoming this time.
0: Well, thank you again for joining us as we finish up our seventh season with Dicey Song by Cynthia Voigt. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please
1: let us know what you like about the episodes. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Or suggestions. Yeah, and suggestions. And also, please rate and review us on whatever platform you find us on. It helps other people find the podcast and helps us keep going.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is newberrytart. That's t.com.